In the previous pericope, Matthew 5:17-20, Jesus declared his intention regarding the Hebrew Scriptures and God's law, namely, to complete God's revelation to humanity and elevate God's law back to its original intention. The law was intended to be the means through which we, as believers, imitate God's holiness. Through obedience to God's law, we not only imitate the holiness of God, but we demonstrate moral and social righteousness. According to John Stott, Reformers and the Puritans used to summarize it. The law sends us to Christ to be justified, and Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. Following his assertion of the permanence of God's law, Jesus exhorts us that our righteousness or obedience to the law must go beyond that of the Pharisees. That is, our obedience must be more than outward or external. It must be inward and internal. Obedience must spring forth from a desire to please God. Now, beginning with Matthew 5.21, Jesus sets forth six examples introduced by the formulaic expression, You have heard, it was said, but I say to you. These six statements accomplish precisely what Jesus stated he came to do specifically to elevate the law to its original intention. However, a significant issue arises over these six statements. The issue is regarding whom Jesus is setting himself against in these statements. Some contend that Jesus is setting himself against the law and establishing a new law. Those who promote such an idea render Jesus' words to say, This is what the Old Testament taught, but I teach something altogether new. Others contrive somewhat ingenious attempts to explain away the text so that it has no bearing upon modern believers. For example, it is purported that Matthew 5.18-19 was not part of the original text. In other words, they claim that Jesus never stated the law would be preserved, nor did he exhort believers to obey and teach God's law. The problem here is that there is no textual support for such a view. As Jesus already set forth, he did not come to abolish the Hebrew Scriptures or annul God's law. His temptation demonstrates the high regard Jesus held for the law. After 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted by Satan to sin. And with each temptation, Jesus quoted the law to rebuff Satan. Satan first tempted Jesus to turn stone into bread. Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4 4. Satan then tempted Jesus to jump off the top of the temple to test whether the angels would catch him. Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Matthew 4.7 Finally, Satan tempted Jesus by promising to give him all the world's kingdoms if Jesus worshipped him. Again, Jesus went to the law and quoted Deuteronomy 6.13 and 10.20. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Matthew 4.10 At the moment Jesus was at his weakest physically, he waged spiritual warfare by quoting God's law. If Jesus was going to abolish or annul the law, why use it to combat his greatest enemy? As well, we as believers would do well to follow his example when engaging in spiritual warfare. When tempted to sin, quote, and practice the law. Of course, this presumes that you've taken the time to study and learn the law.
What Jesus does, beginning in Matthew 5.21, is correct pharisaical distortions to God's law. The best example of such distortion of the law can be seen in Matthew 5.43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The phrase, you shall love your neighbor, comes directly from Leviticus 19.18. However, the following phrase, and hate your enemy, is found nowhere in God's law. The phrase is a pharisaical distortion to the law. The Pharisees were adding to the law and thus were guilty of violating God's command to not add or subtract from his law. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Furthermore, the formulaic phrase, you have heard, it was said, but I say to you, underscores the idea that Jesus is not changing the law, but correcting pharisaical misinterpretation. You see, initially the Pharisees developed a fence for the Torah, siyag la Torah, which created man-made rules or laws that prohibited people from actually violating God's commands when obeyed. Unfortunately, as time passed, these fences took on equal importance with God's law. By Jesus' day, the Pharisees viewed the law as a yoke and a burden. As such, they interpreted the law so that God's commands became less demanding and his permissions more permissible. By restricting the commands and extending the permissions, they sought to make the law's yoke easy and burden light. How ironic that the group charged with protecting and promoting God's law were the very ones undermining it. Thus, Jesus' statement, you have heard, refers to the Pharisees' superficial, narrow interpretations of the law. Also, in each of the, you have heard, it was said, but I say to you, expressions, the verb, were told, or was said, translates the Greek verb, erethe. Erethe. The use of erethe is significant because Jesus never uses this verb to refer to the written Torah, the Torah Shabbatav, otherwise known as the Hebrew Scriptures. Whenever referring to the written Torah or Hebrew Scriptures, Jesus declared, it is written. For example, in Matthew 4.4, 4, he answered and said, it is written, man should not live on bread alone, but in every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now the verb written translates the perfect tense of grapho, which can be rendered, it stands written. Hence, when Jesus refers directly to the written scriptures, he uses the verb grapho. However, when he refers to the pharisaical twisting of the law, or the oral law, the Torah shabayal pei, he uses the verb erothei. In turn, Jesus responds to the Pharisees' minimalistic view of the law with, I say to you. With that phrase, Jesus accomplished two things. First, he established his authority to interpret God's word. The Pharisees established their authority by quoting rabbis of old whose oral teachings on the Torah and traditions had been passed down. Second, Jesus broadens the law's application to include both the letter and the spirit. Interestingly, Jesus' first four examples in the text are commands, while the last two are permission statements. What the Pharisees obscured, Jesus restored. Ironically, though, 
Jesus' interpretation of the law was more exacting and demanding, he says in Matthew 11.30, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Therefore, when Jesus says, you have heard, it was said, but I say to you, he is not contradicting the law, but correcting the pharisaical distortions of the law. As such, he is, his first correction, Jesus' first correction, regards their interpretation of the sixth commandment, prohibiting murder. Jesus explains that while the letter of the law prohibits murder, the spirit of the law prohibits hate and anger. And as such, Jesus sets forth an excursus upon hate, anger, and the kingdom citizen. So as Jesus addresses the issue of hate, anger, and the kingdom citizen, he begins by restoring the original intent of the sixth commandment. And so let's begin by looking at Matthew 5, 21 to 22, and we're going to begin by seeing the sixth commandment properly interpreted. The sixth commandment properly interpreted. Again, the phrases you have heard and were told allude not to the written Torah or law, but to the oral Torah or the teachings and traditions of the Pharisees. While Jesus begins by quoting the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder, he adds the Pharisaical interpretation, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now murder refers to the intentional killing of an innocent person, usually with premeditation. Regarding the prohibition against murder, it must be emphasized that it is not a prohibition against all taking of human life. The prohibition does not apply to the taking of a life in a just war. Now, how does one determine if a war is just? A just war must adhere to seven principles. First, it is not waged without provocation. Second, the mission of the war is to protect or rescue people from danger. Third, war is only initiated after all nonviolent methods have been exhausted. Fourth, war can only be declared by a recognized nation. Fifth, the objectives of the war must be limited and well-defined. Sixth, the military uses only proportionate or necessary force. And seventh, Every effort must be made to protect civilian life. As well, the prohibition against murder does not apply to the use of capital punishment. God declared in Genesis 9-6 that whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made them. When God codified the law in written form, he included the death penalty upon those who intentionally take an innocent life. Exodus 21, 12-14. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. If, however, a man acts presumptuously towards his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. Furthermore, God gave to human government the authority to invoke the death penalty upon evildoers. Romans 13, 4. For human government is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. While strictly speaking, the Hebrew term murder, rasha, refers to the intentional killing of an innocent person, 
Was that God's only intent in this command? According to the Pharisees, yes. The sixth commandment applied only to the physical act. Hence, they said, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. The court, crisis, refers to a board of judges or local court that renders judgment. If someone was charged with murder, the local court would determine whether they were guilty. The Pharisees declared that so long as someone did not physically murder someone, they were not guilty of violating the sixth commandment. However, as Jesus will point out, when properly interpreted, the sixth commandment applies to not only one's outward actions, but to the thoughts and intents of one's heart. Paul affirmed that the sixth commandment is part of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, 8-10 For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law, for this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. According to James 2.8, the royal law according to the scripture is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now specifically, the royal law is found in Leviticus 19.18. That it is referred to as the royal law, implies that it is the king's law. King Jesus declared that the royal law, or loving one's neighbor, is second only to loving God. Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You see, love is first and foremost an issue of your heart or your emotions that direct your volition and eventually manifest itself in your outward actions. Admittedly, love does not drive someone to murder. However, Hatred and anger, for example, are two inward attitudes that can lead to murder. Thus, Jesus says that everyone who is angered with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Jesus' point, then, is that the original intent of the prohibition against murder includes not only the act, but the attitude motivating the action. It not only is murder wrong, but the anger or hatred motivating the murder is also wrong. You see, Jesus' application of God's law demonstrates that God demands more than external conformity to his ethical code. The letter of the law outlaws physical murder. But the spirit of the law applies the law to personal motivations and attitude. Thus, the implication of the sixth commandment goes more in depth than physical murder. The Westminster Larger Catechism explains that the Sixth Commandment obligates people to preserve life by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behaviors, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing, forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. 
As well, the Catechism goes on to state that the Sixth Commandment prohibits sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, provoking words, oppressions, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. Now let's take a moment and work through that. If you don't have charitable thoughts, if you're not loving, compassionate, meek, gentle, kind, peaceable to others, if your speech is not mild or courteous, if your behavior is not courteous, if you're not forbearing, if you're not ready to be reconciled, if you're not patient and forgiving of injuries, if you don't requit good for evil, if you don't comfort and succor the distressed, if you don't protect and defend the innocent, you have violated the sixth commandment. As well, if you have sinful anger or hatred or envy or revenge or excessive passions, you violated the sixth commandment. If you, if you invoke provoking words, if you oppress people, if you quarrel with others, if you strike one another, if you wound others with your word, you know, whatever that may be, you are guilty of violating the sixth commandment. Now, you need to examine yourself and ask, have you violated the sixth commandment? Are you guilty of murder in God's sight? Now, the prescription to preserve life through love, compassion, courteous speech, forgiveness, and the like starkly contrasts hatred and anger. The Apostle John makes it clear, hate is equivalent to murder, and no murderer has eternal life. 1 John 3.15 Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, Jesus states, Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Again, the term court refers to the local board of judges. Whereas the Pharisees declared the court could only find one guilty of murder if they committed the physical act, Jesus says if someone is angry with another person, they can be found guilty of murder. The verb angry or gizo refers to unjust anger. According to Ephesians 4.26, it is possible to be angry and sin not. That is, there are two types of anger, just and unjust. Just anger, sometimes referred to as righteous indignation, is anger or hatred aimed at injustice and immorality. It is an anger that is motivated by love for God and others. Jesus' anger against the money changers is an example of just anger. Now, unjust anger is anger that is aimed at people and motivated by hatred and selfishness. I.e., oh, I'm not getting my way, I'm not getting what I want. That's selfishness. Jesus says that anyone who is angry with someone is guilty of violating the command not to murder. While no human court may find an angry person guilty of murder, God does judge them as guilty. So if you've got hate or anger in your heart, God's judging you as a murderer. Jesus goes on to say, Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, Sunadrion or Sanhedrin, was the highest court in Israel. They were responsible for judging all civil and religious matters. Under Rome, however, the Sanhedrin could not execute wrongdoers, but could make recommendations to the local Roman officials to that end. Here, Jesus uses the Supreme Court Sunhedrion, to refer to God's throne of judgment. The term good for nothing translates the Greek term racha, a transliteration of the Aramaic term rekha. 
It is a term of contempt used to insult a person's intelligence or appearance. Such contempt is born out of anger. Modern equivalents include terms like nitwit, numbskull, fool, or buffoon. To refer to someone in a derogatory manner is to view oneself as better than the other person. However, God created all people equally in his image and likeness. To denigrate another person or to think less of someone else is to insult an image bearer of God. And to this Jesus declares that if you do so, you are guilty of murder before God. Jesus also states that whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The term fool translates moros, from which the English term moron is derived. What does it mean to call someone a fool? Obviously, Jesus referred to the Pharisees as fools in Matthew twenty-three seventeen. How could Jesus refer to them as fools, yet condemn others for the same? Well, obviously, there are different usages of the term. When Jesus referred to the Pharisees as fools, he adopted the Old Testament usage in Psalm 14.1. The fool said in his heart, there is no God. In other words, Jesus stated that the Pharisees were behaving like God deniers. Contextually, when Jesus uses the term fool, in Matthew 5.22, he uses it differently. The term was previously used in Matthew 5.13 in reference to salt that was tasteless or saltless. Since salt cannot lose its saltiness, the idea was that saltless salt is worthless or stupid. Hence, referring to someone as a fool in the context is the equivalent of calling them worthless or stupid. What is obvious is that calling someone a fool or stupid is far worse than calling someone good for nothing or a nitwit. To call someone a fool is sufficient to cast someone into hell or Gehenna, that is the lake of fire. More than likely... The punishment is worse because it involves referring to someone by a less than pleasant expletive. The point is that name calling or referring to people in a derogatory manner is a form of hate or anger and as such makes you a murderer in God's sight. You know, while your words may never physically murder someone, Hurtful and derogatory words murder their emotional and mental well-being. According to God's definition of murder, how many of you are guilty of murder? If you're guilty of hate, anger, or derogatory, demeaning words, you are guilty of murder, and as such, believer, you must repent. Now, whereas... In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus properly interprets the sixth commandment. Now, in Matthew 5, 23 to 26, he practically applies the sixth commandment. Matthew 5, 23 to 26, the sixth commandment practically applied. Therefore, in verse 23, indicates that what follows is the logical conclusion of the previous statement. If in God's sight, Hate and anger are the equivalents of murder and punishable with the lake of fire. How should we as kingdom citizens behave? Jesus answers that question with two illustrations. These two illustrations are different. The first illustration comes from within the worship community and involves a brother or fellow believer. The second illustration comes from the courtroom and involves an opponent or enemy. Jesus' point will be clear. 
We as believers must not harbor hate or anger, whether against a friend or a foe. Let's look at verses 23 and 24 for illustration 1. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. The first illustration involves taking one sacrifice to the temple. Offering, Doran, refers to something presented to God, such as a sacrifice or offering. The term altar, thuslesterion, indicates that a sacrifice is in view. Jesus says that if someone brings their sacrifice to the temple and remember that their brother has something against them, they are to leave their offering, i.e. sacrifice, there before the altar. Then Jesus says they are to go first, be reconciled, and then come and present your offering. Now the verb remember, mimneskomai, means recalling or being reminded of something suddenly. The phrase something against implies a grievance or offense. In other words, if someone comes to the temple to sacrifice, suddenly recalls a grievance or offense that exists between themselves and another, they're to stop and leave their sacrifice at that altar. The command to go, hapago, is to depart and proceed to a new location immediately. The individual immediately departs to be reconciled. The verb reconciled, dialasamai, means to restore relations with someone after an offense. Note that the term first, protas, implies that before doing anything else, one must restore broken relations. Also, both go and be reconciled are imperatives. Jesus does not give any wiggle room here. It is not a case of doing it when convenient. The worshiper must go and reconcile, or at least attempt to reconcile, as the other party may not be willing to do so. Remember the admonition of Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Again, one sacrifice can only be offered upon the altar after reconciliation has been made or attempted. Now, how does this apply to believers today? If a believer is in church, perhaps even in the middle of worship, and they remember there is a grievance or offense between themselves and another, they are to go and resolve the issue immediately. I'll pause here if anybody needs to go resolve an issue. Believers, we must remember that hatred and anger often result from unresolved offenses or grievances. And we must resolve our grievances before hate or anger seeps in and makes us guilty of murder before God. Maybe it would be good for churches to be temporarily emptied so that Jesus' command could be obeyed. I need you to examine yourselves. If there's unresolved issues, you need to go and get them resolved immediately and without delay. Unmistakably, it would be better to resolve the issue before coming to church. But that's not always the case. Sometimes while participating in worship, the Spirit moves upon you and reminds you of the grievance or offense. The point is that while worship is essential, reconciliation is more important. 
It's more important than worship because where grievances are, to are tolerated or ignored, worship is hindered. Go resolve your differences immediately. Now the second illustration comes from verses 25 to 26. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now the second illustration involves going to court to answer one's accuser. The issue at stake in the illustration is an unpaid debt based upon the phrase in verse 26, until you have paid up the last cent. There is a God-given responsibility for a debtor to pay the lender. Romans 13.8 is clear. Owe nothing to anyone except love to one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Accordingly, anyone who owes another and is not actively paying the debt is a lawbreaker before God. They have failed to obey the command to love one's neighbor. Jesus recommends that if someone has an unpaid debt and the lender takes them to court to get back their money, the debtor should make friends quickly with their opponent at law. The term opponent at law antidikos, can be rendered as plaintiff. Interestingly, the term can also be rendered as an enemy. For example, in 1 Peter 5.8, Peter refers to the devil as the adversary or enemy. While the immediate context calls for translating the opponent at law as plaintiff, it is justifiable to render the term as an enemy. Now, how often has money lent between two people resulted in the two becoming enemies because of a failure to pay. If we were all honest, too often. Indeed, owed money is often a source of hate or anger on the part of both parties. Beware, believer, of hating or being angry with the one who owes money or with the one wanting their money. Regardless of which side of the issue you find yourselves, hatred or anger on your part makes you guilty of murder before God Almighty. The idea of make friends quickly is to come to terms quickly and settle out of court. The term quickly, takas, means promptly or without delay. If someone owes a debt, they are to immediately settle their debt. Jesus says that the settlement can even be made while you are with him on the way to court. However, once the case is presented to the court, it will be too late to settle. In the first century A.D. Roman culture, if someone was taken to court for a debt and found guilty, the judge could hand them over to the officer to be thrown into prison. Once in prison, release could not be granted until the debtor paid up the last cent. The last cent, quadrantes, was equal to one sixty-fourth of the daily wage and was the smallest Roman coin. In other words, one was required to pay down to the last penny everything they owed. Now as an aside, Matthew 526 does not support the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Some have claimed that the spiritual meaning of this verse is that man owes a debt to God, and if unpaid, they'll be cast into purgatory until they pay it. Only then will they be released into heaven. The fact is that Jesus paid our debt of sin on the cross with his life and blood. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, 
but also for those of the whole world. Jesus died in our place because we could not pay the debt owed to God. For the believer, death is their entrance into heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.8 I say I preferred rather to be absent from the body than to be at home with the Lord. For the unbeliever, death is their entrance into eternal damnation. Revelation 21.8 For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In both illustrations, Jesus presents an urgent call for immediate action. The call for resolution is urgent because hate and anger are prevalent where grievances or offenses have been made. I challenge you to heed Jesus' call for resolution with immediacy. Do not delay, as any delay will allow hate and anger to grow in you. In God's estimation, hate and anger are, are as horrific as murder. And as such, he will judge all of us who harbor hate and anger. And if you will not repent of your hate and your anger... My friend, you will be cast into the lake of fire. You say, how is it possible that a believer could be cast into the eternal damnation of the lake of fire? It is possible because their lack of repentance demonstrates their lack of true saving faith. Listen, friend, anybody can claim to be a believer. But if you refuse the prompting of the Holy Spirit and the clear commands of God's law, then you're no more saved than the dirt beneath your feet. Believers, we must beware of the thoughts of our hearts and the words of our mouth. Like the psalmist, let us pray, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thought, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If you're harboring hate or anger, repent. If you've used derogatory language, insults, or expletives, out of anger to describe another person, you must repent. Every person is made in the image and likeness of God. And to demean them in anger is to demean the very nature of God in whose image they are made. Father God in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would help us not so much with the letter of the law, but primarily with the spirit of the law. Father, if we were all honest, we would all have to confess that we are murderers. We have violated the sixth commandment. We've all been unjustly angry. We've all had hate in our heart. At times we've used words that were less than pleasing, derogatory, demeaning. And so, Father, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray that you'd move upon the heart of each one listening, Father, that they would come to that same conviction that they might confess, that they might forsake their sin, the sin of their tongue, the sin of their heart. Father, help us to have a love for one another. That doesn't mean that we always agree with one another, Lord. It doesn't mean that we'll always uh, be in agreement. It doesn't mean that we will always see eye to eye. But Father, it does mean that at the, end, at the end of the day we always seek to do what is best for the other person because of who you are and what you've done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you might help us to that end. That, Father, we may not stand before your throne of judgment and be found guilty 
and cast into the lake of fire. I thank you for your grace, Father, that is all sufficient, for your mercy that is new every day. That, Lord, when these things do happen, when they do occur, that we can faithfully come to you and pray and ask forgiveness, confess our sin, and you immediately will cleanse us. I pray, Father, as well, that if there are those who must be reconciled, that, Father, you might move upon their hearts to go and seek reconciliation. And that in doing so, Father, hate and anger might be abetted, relationships might be restored, and that you may get the glory. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen.